Good morning, Deep Run family. Good morning. This morning we will be reading from the English Standard Version, and if you need a Bible to borrow or keep, there's some in the back, and if you're joining us online and need one, just uh, reach out to us and we'll find a way to get you one. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Here is another uh, difficult passage for us in the letter of Ephesians. We've been working through this letter for the last few months, and, and we don't skip over something or ignore it if it's in the Bible. We wrestle with it. We deal with it because we believe it comes from God, um, even the difficult passages, and we've had a few. Uh, in, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul is trying to explain to us what it looks like to live by grace. If we have been saved by grace, how do we live by grace? This is our practical theology, and Paul continues with his ancient household codes on how Christians should live by grace practically in their lives. And, and, and listen, I, I don't... I don't want to make this a, ser a sermon about how slavery is wrong. Of course it is wrong. We all know that it is wrong. And if your own ancestors were ever a part of uh, an enslaved people group at any time or anywhere, I am so sorry. And it's true that over history, some people have tried to use the Bible to support slavery. But you know what? Uh, the Bible acknowledges slavery in the same way that it acknowledges things like divorce and polygamy and patriarchy. It doesn't praise it. At times it regulates it, but always it exposes its futility. Slavery, like divorce and polygamy and patriarchy, is what happens when sinful people build societies. As John Calvin said in the 1500s, slavery is, and I quote, a thing totally against all the order of nature. You cannot make a responsible biblical case for slavery. It is just not possible. So how do we approach this passage, though? Because we have to. What do we do with this passage? Now, I don't know, maybe you are offended at the fact that when you read these verses, when you listen to Caitlin read them, Paul mentions slavery without unequivocally condemning it when he had the chance to. And he didn't, right? Well, I, I respect that perspective from a modern uh, uh, sensibility, but, but I want you to think about something. 
Let's just assume, and I don't, let's just assume that, that you're making, I don't know, $250,000 annually. That's roughly the amount of money that the IRS starts paying closer attention to you. I don't know. I, I don't make that, but let's just say you're making that amount of money a year plus benefits. You've got a corner office, but you have to be so committed to your job, so committed to your company, so committed to your boss that you leave the house before the kids even wake up in the morning, and by the time you come home, they're practically in bed. Are you not, in some sense, enslaved to your job, enslaved to your boss? Now, with the Apostle Paul, in one sweeping hashtag statement, offer you a quick fix to your dilemma? No, he wouldn't. He would be careful, he would be patient, and he would be discerning. Well, neither did Paul assume that slaves in his day could just change their circumstances. Now, it would be unjust and it would be naive of me to compare today's working class in our society uh, with slaves of any era, and I'm not going to do that. But I would like to address our work environment. We have to make this passage practical to us. What is the Holy Spirit saying across culture, across the centuries, to us today in our lives? Well, I would like to apply this passage to your working environment. Some of you may work in an office. Some of you may be on the road a lot. Some of you, your home may be your workplace. It may be your full-time vocation at this point in your life. Well. Whatever your work environment is, whether you have authority and power in your work environment or whether you are virtually helpless and invisible in your work environment, whether as a worker or as a manager, the Christian is called to honor God in the workplace. Christians are called to honor God in their workplace whether they find themselves in positions of authority or whether they find themselves in positions of submission. I want to talk about honorable work today, and I want to talk about honorable management. That's just as important, you'll see. And I want to talk about how in a fallen world, God redeems both. How in a fallen world, God for the Christian redeems work and management so that whether you're in a position of authority at work or whether you are virtually in a helpless position in your work, you can honor a good God. Good work honors a God who does good work. Work is not a bad thing. Work predates Humanity's fall into sin. Work is not a bad thing. It was Jesus in John chapter 5 who said, my father is working until now and I am working. God created humanity to do good, meaningful, creation, uh, caring, and life-giving work to uh, the world. But humanity fell. And the Bible tells us that all of creation fell into futility because of human sin. So in a fallen world, everybody has to toil to some degree, right? And when I say toil, I mean work in frustration. 
you realize that not all work is good and invigorating and productive and life-giving. Some work saps the life out of you. Some work ends in total futility and frustration. Some work gets you and the people around you nowhere. Some work seems to be, as Ecclesiastes in the Bible says, totally in vain. Now, slavery, let's think about it in very general terms throughout history, slavery is when those who have no rights and no protection and no dignity in a society, it is when those people are forced to toil for the benefits of other people. Centuries before the Apostle Paul, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, uh, for all that we're impressed about him, Aristotle summed summed up the ancient mindset on slavery. He said, a slave is a living tool. You see that? Basically not a human being. We've heard that definition of slavery in our own society centuries ago. Now, slavery was basically the basis of the Roman Empire's economy during the time that Paul wrote this letter. 10% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. In the city of Rome itself, slaves made up 30% of its population. Here's the difference, though, uh, from how we as Americans understand slavery in our own uh, difficult past. Ancient slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on ethnic or racial prejudice, uh, as was sadly and grotesquely the case in our own society uh, centuries ago. In ancient Greece and ancient Rome, people became slaves because they went bankrupt or they went into debt that they couldn't repay. And so they would indenture themselves to somebody else, literally allow somebody else to financially and legally own them so that they could get the essential food and shelter that they couldn't provide for themselves. Some people were forced into slavery as prisoners of war. And yes, some people were forced into slavery uh, because they were born into it. But slaves could be legally emancipated, and some slaves ended up becoming citizens of Rome and uh, even became quite successful. Although some scholars fairly point out that even for a former slave emancipated, become successful in that culture, uh, quite often the stigma of slavery uh, was still attached to their reputation. So, I mean, the bottom line is any time in history, in any society, in any place, slavery is never a good thing, right? I hope, I hope we can all agree on that. The Jews, though, the ancient Israelites saw slavery uh, differently. The Torah, the law of Moses in the Old Testament provided certain remarkable protections For anyone who was a slave in Hebrew society, for example, you saw this earlier in our call to worship, the Sabbath day was not only rest for you, the Sabbath day was rest for any servants who worked for you and lived in your home. Actually, servants who were Jews were to go free, according to the law of Moses, they were to go free after seven years of work, and they were to go free with provisions, yes, with handouts, after seven years of labor. And the basis for all of this uh, justice and compassion towards servants 
in Hebrew society, according to God, was found in the second iteration of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. What's interesting is if you read the famous Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the reason for the Sabbath rest was, do you know why? Because God worked and then rested, right? But in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's a different reason for why the Jews should rest. It says, because you were slaves. You were a nation of slaves, and you should never forget what that was like and what I have saved you, what I have redeemed you from. And so nobody works. And when you rest, your servants rest. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. So the early church, which naturally came out of the Jewish faith, the early church saw slavery not as a good thing, not as a necessary thing, but as a thing, as a problem that wasn't going to go away anytime soon. See, unlike Western society and our own society's abolition movement, where, where, where in the modern West, Christian influences permeated all of society and abolitionism in our society had momentum because of biblical influences for 2,000 years, the early Christians were a very slight minority in Roman society. So rather than work for justice legally across the West, they couldn't. They, had no, they, they didn't have the, the legal, social muscle and capital to do that. So what the early church did was they addressed slavery locally. They addressed it personally in every household. And so Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, says bondservants, and some of your English translations just say servants or just say slaves, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now, by the phrase fear and trembling, Paul did not mean shaking in your pants, okay? That is a phrase that's often used for reverence and respect in worshiping God. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul told the church in Corinth to treat his own associate Titus with, I quote, fear and trembling. They respected and honored Titus. Uh, it, it's, it's, that's simply what it means. Now, not a fake respect. Because as Paul goes on to say in verse 6, not with eye service. Eye service meaning don't only do a good job when they're looking at you and watching you. He says, work as you would work for Jesus Christ. As he says in verse 6, work from the heart. So even if a master in that day was brutal towards a Christian slave, well, a servant could work with an eye on God in the situation. And so that servant's good work would be a witness in that household in spite of a master's brutality. And in a sense, that servant's good work would be a witness against an unjust master's shame. Now, let's not take for granted the fact that Paul addressed slaves in his letters. That's actually remarkable. I want you to think about the fact that he addresses slaves in this passage as he had addressed children, in the verses before it, and as he had addressed wives in the verses before that. What's the, what's the theme here? What's the thread? 
He's addressing everyone in the household in that society that had a lower status. And he's saying to all of them in God's eyes, you have the same status as your parents, you have the same status as your husbands, you have the same status as your boss or as your master. You know, I find that really fascinating that we take this for granted, that he's actually including slaves in his letter to the church. Because I want you to think about it. I want you to think about today's progressive, democratic, woke, United States society. And I want you to admit with me that in American society today, the church is more segregated than it was 2,000 years ago. When you think about American society and the church today, how many white people and black people are worshiping together regularly? And Asian people, how many of us are all worshiping together across racial and ethnic boundaries? How many poor people and rich people are worshiping together in American churches? You know the answer, very little. And yet 2,000 years ago in the early church, we see that slaves are viewed alongside of masters as equal in Christ. Slaves who had become Christians understood that their dignity was complete in God's eyes, and their dignity in the eyes of God gave them, gave everybody in the church, a work ethic. This is where their work ethic came from. You are equal in the eyes of God. Actually, I think the example of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 and through 50 is really helpful to us because if you look at all of the Bible, really the first true slave was Joseph. You can argue that his father Jacob for a while was in servitude with Laban, and that's all true, but, but your classic definition of a slave to be pitied uh, for no rights and no dignity really is Joseph. Joseph was the first true slave among believers in the Bible. And Joseph's long career, in that career, he served in status roles all across the gamut. Think about Joseph. He was the favorite child of a wealthy man, and then he became a slave with absolutely no rights in a foreign country. Then he was imprisoned unjustly and worked very hard in prison and became a foreman in prison and was yet forgotten for years. And then eventually, Joseph (laughs) rises up and essentially becomes the humanitarian food czar of all ancient Egypt. Joseph is in control of the food supply of an entire nation and was second in command only uh, under Pharaoh's authority in an entire nation. But in all of those roles, Joseph knew who was in ultimate control, and that's who Joseph served. He was always serving God in every role that he was in. And the key to that is found later in his life when he said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You see, that's the proof that in Joseph's mind, this is Joseph's work ethic. From slave to basically second in charge of an entire nation, Joseph was always working for God, whether his master was Potiphar or whether his master was Pharaoh. He was always working for God. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 6 is that anyone can do good work if they are motivated by a good God. But in a fallen world, the haves oppress the have-nots. 
That's how human nature works. In every society, the powerful take advantage of the weak. Power tends to corrupt. And if powerful people with a lot of authority don't mean to inflict oppression on the weak, they often do it by neglect and by naivete and by ignorance. This is the world in which we live. It happens. So we have to talk about management. Good management reflects a God who is just and a God who is merciful. In a world where masters could literally beat or kill their slaves with impunity, right? No, no legal ramifications at all. In that environment, Paul says in verse 9, masters do the same to them, meaning you uphold your end of the honor dynamic. Masters, stop your threatening. Despite their dominant, do, sorry, despite their dominant status in that society, they were not to abuse their authority. And that's something we have to consider if we're all in positions of authority where we work. Whether you own a business or you manage a team at work or you're a VP or, or you're, you're an administrator, you know, whatever the situation, or you're in charge at home, whatever the situation might be. You know, uh, those who fall under your authority should not be shaking in their pants when they have to go into your office. Those who are under your authority should not break out into a cold sweat when they see they've received an email from you. Paul would go and say to his Christian friend Philemon, uh, this is in a different letter, the letter Philemon, Paul said to Philemon to receive back a Christian slave of his who had escaped, and Paul basically said in the letter, I want you to receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother. I mean, where, where did Paul's radical, practical theology to talk like this in that day and age come from? To say to somebody who had owned a slave, hey, he escaped and he's a good guy and he loves Jesus and you love Jesus, I want you to bring him back and I want you to embrace him no longer as a slave but as a brother. Where did Paul come up with language like that? Well, you see it in verse 9. He keeps talking. This is why he says, stop your threatening. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I find it so intriguing that Paul uses as the justification for not being abusive in the workplace. He says, why? Because everybody's master is in heaven. I mean, every, it's obvious. God, of course God's in heaven. Why bring that up? Because I think he's trying to impress upon his listeners, his, his readers, what Isaiah knew was that from everybody's perspective, I mean, from God's perspective, everybody looks like what? In Isaiah chapter 40, everybody looks like a grasshopper. Kings and peasants, owners and slaves, men and women, children, adults, everybody looks like a grasshopper from God's perspective. And so he would say to the church in Galatia in a different letter, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now we already know that because we've read Ephesians chapter 2. God broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews. But he goes on, he says, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Equal dignity in the eyes of God. Equal dignity for the Christian, what does it do? It levels the playing field wherever we work. 
in all human endeavor, in industry and in business and government and education and even in our home. Equal dignity in the eyes of God levels the playing field. There is no place for arrogance or pride or mismanagement. We are all in positions of submission or authority at work. And, and some of you are, are do, doing double duty. Some of you are in middle management. Some of you have people under your authority and you submit to someone else's authority, right? Well, authority is never a license for abuse or neglect or mismanagement. With great power comes, what did the Spider-Man movie say like a hundred times? With great power comes, thank you, Everett. If anything, listen to, Spider -Man, listen to the old Spider-Man movies. You've been given much in the workplace. You've been given much in your profession or your vocation. Well, God expects much of you. Workers must be honorable, yes, but managers must be just. As, as Chris said to the kids, essentially said this morning, yeah, okay, be a boss, but don't be bossy. So whatever your work is and wherever your work is, the Christian can work for God. You know, we haven't, we, we've all worked in jobs and for people where it felt like constant toil, right? I mean, I remember like just dragging shopping carts around an entire, you know, uh, parking lot when I was like 18 years old, felt like I was working on the surface of the sun in the middle of the summer, right? You've, we've all had those jobs where like, I don't want to do this for another minute, right? And I, is this ever going to end? And we've all had those people, those bosses, those people we've worked for or work alongside of, like, please, Lord, I do not work with, want to work with this person anymore. I do not want to work for this person. We, we, we've all had those experiences, right? When is it going to end? As we sang this morning, <laughs> how long, oh Lord, do I have to work for this corrupt, unjust manager? Or how long, oh Lord, do I have to pick weeds and thorns? Do I have to lick postage stamps? Do I have to clean up the mess on aisle 12, right? How long, oh Lord? Well. I was once feeling sorry for myself. You're, I, 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 unfortunately, to my shame, I have felt sorry for myself far too often in, in work that I didn't want to do throughout my life. But there was this one particular time that I was feeling sorry for myself with the hard work that I have to do in an environment where I felt like I was cleaning up other people's message. Socially speaking, I was cleaning up other people's messes. And I was really frustrated, and an older brother in the Lord came to me and said, you know, I see you're working hard. I know this stuff wasn't your fault, but what if Jesus were here right now and said, Brian, I know. I know what you're doing, and I know what you're going through, and I know it's not your fault, but I want you to do it. I want you to do it for me. And it totally changed my perspective. In, I mean, it... I mean, you'd think that would come easily to a Christian, but in that moment, the whole thing flipped upside down for me. You just, what if Jesus said to you, I know it's hard, but I want you to do it for me? And, and I thought, I, I would do anything for Jesus. Like, I would do anything willingly if I knew that Jesus wanted me to do that for him. I would do it. 
So maybe, maybe you need to see past, okay? Think, you know, kind of literalistically for a second as a metaphor. Maybe you need to see past whoever is managing you right now. See past them to realize that you're working for Jesus. Or maybe you need to see past the people on your team. Or you need to see past your employees or the people you're responsible for. Maybe you need to see past them and find God in the situation and honor him regardless of what your role is. Um, I want you to ask yourself if you are working in an environment right now where honor is being neglected? Or are you working in an environment where justice is being neglected? Maybe both. Are you working in an environment where honor and justice are being neglected? Is honorable work being neglected by workers in your work environment? And are you one of them? Are you neglecting honorable work? Is all that you see the futility or unfairness of your job and the job that you have to do? Is all that you see certain people who don't have to do what you do? Well, the teacher of Ecclesiastes said this, and I encourage you to think about it this week. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. You see, even with frustrating, futile work, the Christian can find satisfaction. This too, he went on, this too I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? What if you saw that a God who sees your work and will reward you, because that's basically what Paul says in verse eight, right? Work for the God who does see what you're doing and will reward you. Right? What, if, what if you saw in your work environment that that God sees you and understands and is going to reward all that you do for him? Even if nobody notices it, even if nobody gives you the credit for it, even if you get overlooked, even if you're treated worse. Let me ask a question to other people here. Is justice being neglected by dishonorable managers where you work? Are you, if you're in a position of authority, neglecting justice where you work? Leviticus chapter 25, the Lord told the Israelites regarding slaves among them, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now that's interesting. He didn't say, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall be kind to him. Maybe that's what you'd expect Moses would have said. It says, don't rule over him ruthlessly, but fear your God. That's interesting because isn't that what it's ultimately about? Capitalism says your goal is a profit. Capitalism says your goal is to provide a better product and service than the next company or the next guy over. Fine. You know, though, if you don't have your eye on God in a management position, 
You may just get all those things, Jesus said. You may build a legacy for yourself. You may, out, you, know, you may grow the company. You may please your boss. You may do all of these wonderful things, but I fear for your soul, and I fear for the people who have to submit to your authority if God is not in the equation of your management style and your management policies. And if your workplace is your home, then I fear for your kids. If God is not in the equation of your management style. And you know what Jesus said to people who look impressive to the rest of this world and build a name for themselves and build their company up and get everything in this life? He says, they have received their reward. That means enjoy it now. You will only enjoy it now. It is critical that workers and managers keep their eye on God in what they do. Because God redeemed hard work and God redeemed just management at the cross. What we see at the cross is a redemption of work and a redemption of management. And I want, it's a long passage, I'm sorry, and I couldn't figure out how to cut this down. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I want each of you look to not, Paul said, I want each of you to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we know now from this passage that this is just not about in church. This is about all of life, where we work and where we live and where we play. It applies to everything. Look to the interests of others, not only your own. He said, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, right? I mean, like you can't get higher than that. He says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a, guess what? A servant, the same word in the Greek. And Paul went on to say that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And this is death on a Roman cross. This is Roman, crucifi Roman crucifixion. There was no more humiliating, shameful death and punishment that the ancient world knew. And here is God, the Son of God, taking it on himself. And Paul would say, therefore, because Jesus hung on a shameful cross, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. You see, the cross shows us that submission and justice bring grace. Do you see that? And in a work environment where both submission and justice are pursued, you will breathe grace to your coworkers. You will breathe grace to your bosses. You will breathe grace to your employees. Because God justly, justly, judged your sin, your laziness, your workaholism, your mismanagement on the cross when Christ submitted, Christ the perfect worker, submitted to a shameful death. And what did Jesus say before he died? What are those three words? It is 
finished. He completed the good work that his heavenly father sent him to do. For everyone who has overworked or underworked or abused their managers or abused their employees. He died for us all in submission. And then you know what? Then God the Father justly vindicated his good work by raising him from the dead. You see, God rewards good work that's done for him. So the gospel is a picture of both honorable submission and honorable authority. Jesus did not allow injustice to take his eyes off of the good work that his heavenly father had sent him to do. He didn't say, I quit because I'm not being treated fairly. Where are my rights? Forget it. Then we're all going to hell because there was no just crucifixion for our sin. And God the Father did not allow our sin our laziness, our workaholism, our mismanagement, our disrespect to management. He didn't allow any of that to take his eyes off of mercy and forgiveness. So, you know, whether you're a worker or a manager, and many of you are both, the Christian is called to be Christ-like in the workplace. We are called to both submit to authority and to be just in our authority. Whatever your work is, wherever your work is, you can work for Jesus. You can manage for Jesus. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope that you have found today something more compelling, a more compelling reason to find meaning and purpose and redemption in your work. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you never gave up, that you were always working for our benefit, that you, will all, you were always working for the glory and honor of your heavenly Father, and we are the beneficiaries of that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for never giving up. You are just. You are merciful. Father, in our leadership capacities, may we humble ourselves as Jesus did. And Father, in our labor capacities, may we, may we respect authority as Jesus did. In his name, amen.